Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You can have everything else, but the absence of love would nullify whatever else you have. And if you think about your whole life story, think about how much of what you do and what you think and what you strive for are because ultimately you are in this lifelong journey of wanting to get love and to express love to others. And you could give somebody everything, but if they don't have love, in the end you see a hollow, empty shell of a person. Have you ever met someone like that who appeared to have everything people say they want, but the one thing they don't have really is true love? And at the end of the day, without love, the heart withers. I remember seeing children who were orphaned in China. They were biologically, genetically normal, but all their lives from their birth, they were discarded human beings who never once received anything other than the basic creaturely care that an animal at the zoo might receive. And that's not even fair because the animals at the zoo receive a lot of love from their zookeepers. They were treated more like the animals in a pound, in a rescue shelter maybe, And all they received was food and basic shelter. And these children, many of them were crippled. They were mentally deficient. They had so many deficits, even though they were biologically normal, because all their lives, they had never once experienced real love. The absence of love in a person's life even has physical repercussions. That's how powerful a force love is. And so it led the Apostle Paul to write these words in 1 Corinthians 13, chapter, one, chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, But have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Hey, I want to ask the AV guys, is there any way I can get this um, confidence monitor up and running? It's, It's blank right now. One time when Jesus was asked, what is the most important command on the heart of God for human beings, he famously answered by reducing the entire history of human religion and the entire Christian faith to one verb. He said, you want to know what's the most important thing that God wants? He wants from us. He wants in us. He wants for us. What is the most important thing that God has in mind for everyone? And he reduced it to one simple word. He said, love. What God wants most is that we should love him with everything and that in the same way we love ourselves so naturally, we would love one another. That is the most important thing on the heart of God. And so I hope you're beginning to see the picture. It's working now. Thank you. I hope you're beginning to see the picture that in the eyes of God, the most important thing on earth is love. Without it, we are truly, truly hopeless and helpless. 
Here's the thing, though. We're not left to simply define for ourselves what love is. Many people in this room would agree, yes, I agree with you. Love is central. It's most important. But we can't then from there go on to define love the way we want to define it and spend the rest of our lives pursuing that kind of love because God has gone to great pains to define for us what is the kind of love that makes the universe run. What is the kind of love that God has in store for us, has in mind for us. And the kind of love that God has in mind for us is a love called agape love. You guys, have you heard this phrase, agape love? Agape is a Greek word that has no easy English parallel. And so probably you've, you've heard of ministries or Bible studies or, or bands that were named agape in your past. It's a beautiful word that I think most of us think we understand but most of us, on a daily basis, fail to practice truly. And so let me define for you how the Bible describes this thing called agape love. Now, unlike English, most other languages have a different set of words to describe different kinds of love. And Greek is no exception. Uh, New Testament Greek, the Greek around Jesus' time, had a number of key words to describe different kinds of love that are common to the human experience. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis very helpfully, uh, author and thinker C.S. Lewis, helped us define four different kinds of love that are common to the human experience. And the first is what we call storge love. That's a Greek word that describes, for lack of a better term, family love. It's the kind of love you feel that's drawn from the affinity of people you're familiar with, people you belong to. In other words, you kind of at times go, well, you know, it's not like I, can, I totally dig my family, but what are you going to do? This is a family I got. They're my people. They're my tribe. We have blood in common. We have children together. This is family. And because you've grown up with them, you see them all the time, sure, you can yell at them, you can hurt them, but if anyone else threatens them, you're all of a sudden like, hey, buddy, that's my family. You better... Watch out. And even a scrawny guy like me becomes this fierce fighter if you threaten family because that's instinctive and natural. We naturally, with very little effort, have this storge love for the people we belong to and who belong to us. There's another kind of love common to human experience. It's called eros love. And I think mistakenly, a lot of people have equated this with simply erotic or sexual love, but really it's romantic love. It's the kind of love that we're meant to feel with somebody that we are attracted to in a romantic way. And according to the God's design and the word of God, it's between a man and a woman. But it's that, it's that single-minded, exclusive attraction that people feel for each other. And that's a very common thing um, that, that people experience. And another kind of love is phileo love, which, again... Uh, as, these are all very rich terms. I am intentionally simplifying them so we can talk about them without spending eight hours. And phileo love is what we might call friendship love. It's the love that is born out of an affinity for someone because we have common interest, a powerful shared experience. We have shown some mutual concern for one another. It's the kind of love you feel for the guys you would get on an airplane to go see because they're your boys. Man, are you, are you feeling that? You know, they're, they're the guys on your speed dial list so that when you get arrested in the middle of the night, these are the guys you call to bail you out. They're the ones you want to watch March Madness with. And ladies, you have this, I, I just don't have any female parallels because I'm not a girl, but you have that similar kind of dynamic for the women that you love to be around. 
I just heard this new, new phrase, bromance. Uh, I just saw a music video somebody sent me online. Bromance, if I loved you anymore, it would be gay. That kind of like the love between male friends that is so deep, it's almost borderline romance, eros and phileo mixed together. That's a weird kind of love. But the idea is there are different kinds of love in the human experience. But agape love, divine love, the kind of love which God is talking about that powers the universe is not found perfectly or completely in any of these loves. But he says there is this love which if you receive it, experience it, give it away, will make everything work. And that is agape love which we would call maybe, uh, this is a good way, of it's divine love or unconditional love. It is not a love that is born out of a natural response to the person that we're loving. You draw this out of me. The way I love my child because they are, they've sprung from my loins. That's my DNA taking on flesh and blood. Of course, I will love that. It's not that kind of love. It is a love that is very intentional. It's a love of choice. And it's a love that can only be sparked in us from a divine origin. This kind of love doesn't generate from inside of a person. All the other kinds of love might, but this kind of love, John writes, comes from God. It has divine origin. It's not a kind of love that you say, well, okay, agape love, Pastor Dave preached on it. I got to discipline myself. I'm going to write a list of all the attributes of agape love, and I'm going to work on them one after another. It isn't that kind of love. You can't work at becoming more agape in your life. Agape love is a love that is downloaded from a supernatural source, and once it's, it's imprinted on the hard drive of your soul, it churns about in there, and it does a work that is profound, and it actually changes you as a person. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's because your operating system is not, in, it's incompatible with this file so far, but God invites you to get it. It is not a love you can understand cognitively. It is first a love which you experience. That isn't to say it's a mindless love, but you can't understand agape love by studying all the Greek behind agape love. Do you understand that this is a kind of love which must be received from God so that when I give away agape love, it's not a spiritual act. It is me serving as a conduit, a tube through which something divine passes through me. Now, if that sounds just totally foreign to your experience, if you struggle to love people, this is important that you understand how all this works because John also makes some very strong statements about the implications for those who believe that they are saved, but they have always struggled to love others. People say, you know, I dig God. I know Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I'm a Christian. I know God. I just can't stand people. This love thing has always challenged me, but that doesn't mean I'm not spiritual. I'm very spiritual. I know God. I just don't love anyone. If that's your testimony, you need to listen because John has some very strong words to the Holy Spirit to give to you to wake you up from that illusion, that lie that such a statement could possibly be true. He says this love comes from God and it is deposited into those people who are born of God. 
And that, that means if you struggle with this, you don't have a delivery problem, but you have an inventory problem. The problem is not that you don't know how to give away love, that, but that, that you don't have a love to give away. Do you understand the difference there? It's not that you just don't know how to express love or to tell. It's not that you, you're uncomfortable with emotional expression or, or you're emotionally constipated. That's what a lot of guys hide behind. Hey, listen, honey, you know I love you, right? Come on. You know, right? I just, I don't get into all the mushy words and flowers and all that. And that's not how I am. Now, some guys are being honest. Emotionally, they are really constipated. There's like a telephone pole somewhere it doesn't belong. I mean, they just don't know how, okay? But what we're really saying is if you struggle genuinely with love, it's not that you don't know how to express it, but that you're scooping into an empty pot. You're trying to give away something which you have never really had. And that's why it's so hard to hear sermons like this because you're like, I don't know how to love. It's not that I don't know how to show love. I don't know how to give away love because I don't really know what it feels like to be filled with love. For a lot of us, that issue dates all the way back to our family of origin. Being raised in a family in which love was never freely expressed so that even when God invites us into a relationship of love, we don't really feel comfortable interacting with God on that level. Now, the remedy then is not to try to figure out how to pour love into yourself, but the remedy, of course, is to spend time with God, who is the source of this love, and simply ask him, would you pour into me This love which has eluded me all my life. People talk about it with this faraway look in their eyes. Some people I meet, you could just feel it. I don't even understand it, but you feel it. They are full of love to give away. And I've never once in my life felt that. I hold my children, and yes, I want to fight for them. I want to feed them. I want to send them to a good college. I want to give them a nice house and all the toys they want. But when I hold my own child even... Sometimes I struggle to really feel something deep. Sometimes when I'm with my boyfriend or girlfriend, I think, yeah, this is going to work out. I really think this is going to work out. I like them. They're so nice to me. I can imagine a good life together. But in your heart of hearts, something is just dead there. You don't feel this deep, deep, earth-shaking, moving kind of selfless love, which you've heard other people describe about the way they feel. You just go, yeah, we can make this work. But in your heart, something profound is missing. And if that's your situation, you don't have a a delivery problem. You have an inventory problem. Your storehouse is empty, which is why it's so hard to give away this thing, which you don't possess. John, like I said, goes on to make some very strong statements. Listen to this one. Whoever does not love does not know God. I don't know that it could be said any more plainly than that. The ultimate test of whether or not we know God is not how much theology we can rightly spout. And some people I've met are capable of writing 8,000-page treatises on doctrine and theology. But the real test of whether or not we have known this God, which we can so, so describe in excruciating detail, is whether or not the love of God is in us. The knowing of God is not like Wikipedia knowing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Every time I need to know something, I right away turn to Wikipedia. It's the quickest way to know something at the most surface level. 
But knowing some, a lot about someone is not the same as actually knowing them. Would you agree that I know Jeannie in a way that none of you know Jeannie? In a way that none of you better know Jeannie? Right? Can we agree to that? I've invested 20 years plus of my life in that knowledge, and we have had some experiences together so that while I may not be able to write the biography of Jeannie Lee as well as somebody else may, I can tell you that I know this person because there is something we have shared and exchanged that runs deeper than head knowledge. And maybe that's what's missing for many of us in this relationship we have with God. And here's another profound thing that John says. Not only does he say that no claim to know God is valid without this experience of love, but he also says this. He can say that because God isn't just somebody who loves. God is himself in very essence love. That's a mind-blowing statement. Every religion that has ever existed has described God in much the same way. We agree on a lot of things. God is transcendent. He's above us. He's holy. If he weren't holy and good, he'd be a jerk of a God. A lot of the ancient gods in the pantheon of gods, like Loki, were just jerks. Zeus himself, the supreme Greek god, was really a dysfunctional adult male is all he was. He's a soap opera character. So most religions today, especially monotheistic religions, the worship of one God, they regard God very much the same way. He is holy. He is transcendent. He has authority and power. He has the freedom to judge us and call us to account for our lives. He is the great provider so that if we pray or throw a virgin into a volcano, we will have a good harvest the next year. Right? That's what every religion believes about God. But Christianity is unique in all the world religions in, in fixing upon God this one attribute so centrally. And that is that our God, unlike every other God, is love. Every God at times shows love, shows acts of mercy and kindness. But in our faith, our God doesn't just occasionally love. He is in very essence love. So that whatever we experience as love of any kind flows directly from what God is. We believe that we understand and experience love because God is love and he's the source of everything we call love. The reason you feel anything for your children at all if you're a parent is that God is love and he feels that for you as his child. The reason you feel anything for anyone is because God, who being in essence love, has put that love into you. And we see this work most prominently displayed in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time just considering the remaining verses of this passage, looking at two things that, that mark the love of Jesus Christ for us and how we might then understand and share that love with other people. One thing I notice in the love of Christ for us is that his love is a sacrificing love. It's a sacrificing love. Can we agree together that the word sacrifice is actually not a good word in English language or in American culture today? We don't really regard sacrifice as a good thing, sometimes a necessary thing, but not really a favorable thing. Would you agree with that? Who wants to get... You sell products today by saying, you can have this and not give up anything. 
That's how we sell products today. You can have it all, give up nothing, make no sacrifices, and get all the gain. Want to eat cookies and still lose weight? Try this. That's our culture. And yet at the heart of divine love, of the kind of love that makes the universe run, is this inescapable consequence that true agape, divine, unconditional love must also involve sacrifice. You cannot love someone for any duration of time in a true and divine way and never experience sacrifice. It's prominently noted in this text that God gave his one and only son. Why didn't God just go, hey, you, angel number 2,648, you'll do. You, I want, I'm going to give you all authority, representative power. You go down and I'm, we're going to jack you up good. I mean, you're going to get beat. And after you're dead, I'm going to declare all humanity righteous because of what you did. Thanks, man. You're a good employee. There's a little bonus waiting for you at the end. God had the power to do that, I suppose. But that is not the way that he redeemed humanity. It says that he gave away his one and only son, and he sent him to be an atoning sacrifice. In other words, the whole purpose of God sending his only son to the earth was that he might be broken and spent and poured out so that others would get some benefit from his life and death. Another way of saying that is that love must cost something. I know that that's not earth-shattering news in a church, but I want you to think about how much we really struggle with that aspect of love. When I talk with people, I find that the most common struggle of love is when love and its requirements start to cost us something. And we start to feel claustrophobic in the cost involved. What are you saying? That I can never escape you? What are you saying? That I'm obligated to you? That I'm bound to you? That it's going to actually cost me my dreams, my freedom, my future, my wealth, even my physical beauty or my health? Are you saying to me that loving you is going to have a huge price tag? Because when we come upon that level of love, most of us shrink back from it. Just think about romantic love, okay? Most of us, at least in a one-sided fashion, have experienced falling in love at some point in our lives, I think, right? Even if it was just with Zac Efron or someone else, I don't know. <laughs> right, right, girls? I mean, some of the young girls have had a thing for him at one point or another. Even if it's from that distance, we have all experienced this feeling of falling in love. Just think about that phrase, falling. I don't even have to do anything. I just... Ah, I just fall in love. But then you pursue that relationship, and all of a sudden, after a while, the same person who's so cool, so spontaneous, so bundles of fun, now go, hey, um, listen, I have expectations of you. I need you. And I need you to the exclusion of how other people may need you because I have claim to you. I have claim. You're mine. And we start hearing those words, and this idea of the sacrifice, the cost of love, really starts to press down on our soul, doesn't it? Do you know how many people that I've talked to would have considered a good news if I said to them, hey, sucks to be you. Why don't you cut and run? Just go. Who could blame you? I got your back. Don't worry about it. I absolve you, blah, blah, blah. I say some Latin words. Forgive them. Run on. 
Be free. Get away. Those people would have thought I was the greatest pastor in the universe at that moment. Thank you for setting me free. But the truth is love by its very nature is a form of bondage. And it's a good bondage because if we're not obligated to one another, there's really nothing between us. Love is costly. Think about storge love, right? Family love. How costly is that? In a way, it's a, a love that doesn't require much because it's just your genes. It, blood is thicker than water. Can't stand you, but you're my brother. What am I going to do? I got to love you. And so we love. Think about romantic love. Most of us don't search out love. We fall in love. We wait till somebody just grabs us and like falling over off a chair, we fall into it. Friendship love is much the same way. We are friends as long as you don't stab me in the back, as long as you're a lot of fun, as long as you don't judge me or say tough things to me. We're friends as long as I'm comfortable being me around you. All those other forms of friendship are possible to experience apart from God. Non-Christians experience those forms of love every single day on this planet. Isn't that true? Mothers love their sons even outside the church. Men and women fall in love. Women and women, men and men fall in love outside this church all the time. There are friends toasting one another at a bar, enjoying a level of intimacy that sometimes we can't even mirror in the church. There are forms of love that are common to humanity that don't require divine intervention to experience. But that is not the kind of love that ultimately holds the universe together. That is a very tenuous love. And that is why families break up all the time. That's why Thanksgiving is not always such a great time of the year for everyone, is it? That's why the divorce rate is at 50%. That's why there are people you unfriend on Facebook. Is that right? Defriend, unfriend, whatever you want to call it. These other forms of love are tenuous at their very best. Because they're dependent on whether or not I still like you today. But there's a kind of love that is more powerful than that. And it's a love that is sacrificing love. That's what we call agape love. That's March Madness right now. Some of you can hardly concentrate. How are you doing in the pools, by the way? Anybody doing really well? Raise your hand if you're just kicking butt in the pools. Well, I just want to see who the, the, the sinning gamblers are. Where are you? All right, so you're smart enough not to out yourself. Some of you can hardly concentrate right now because you're thinking about Kentucky Baylor, right? You just got to know who wins. When we think of March Madness, we almost always think of the men's NCAA basketball tournament. But there is a wonderful story emerging out of the women's basketball side of that equation. I have been so blessed by this story, I want to share it with you. And I want to introduce you to a woman named Elena Deladon. You guys, any of you heard of her? It's an amazing story. She's 6'5". She is often called the female LeBron James. She, out of high school, was the number one most sought-after recruit. And she was recruited. And it's like winning the lottery. When UConn got her to sign, she went over to them. But after 48 hours on campus, she had a fit of uneasiness. And in the middle of the night, she left the campus, withdrew from the school, told everybody, listen, I'm going through some personal stuff. I can't play basketball this year here. I need to go home to Delaware. Everyone, because she was not forthcoming about her reasons, conjectured, why would she do this? It's tantamount to career suicide to go play, be recruited by the number one school in the country, a perennial powerhouse, and she left without even starting the season. What gives? A lot of people on the campus felt betrayed. 
She went back to Delaware, enrolled in the University of Delaware, spent that first year as a walk-on playing on the women's volleyball team, just distancing herself from basketball for a while. And later on, it became clear why she went home. She didn't go home because of basketball burnout. She went home because she has an older sister named Lizzie. This, this is the, the Deladon siblings, um, her brother, and then her on, on that side on the left, and her older sister, Lizzie, who was born deaf and blind and with cerebral palsy. She was born really almost like Helen Keller in a complete shell where she had very few ways she could interact with the world around her. And for as long as Elena had been alive, she had loved her older sister and connected to her in one way, by the senses of smell and touch. She knew Elena's smell. Lizzie always knew when Elena was in the room by her smell, by the vibrations of her voice, by the, the, the way that she touched. You could see her in videos always kissing her sister's forehead. They had such a deep connection. And when Elena finally left home to go to Connecticut, it's not on the other side of the planet, but it's far away enough that she realized, Lizzie, my sister, I'm cut off from her. I've just removed myself completely from her life because Lizzie cannot read an email. She can't even hear the email being read to her. She can't talk on the phone. So by physically removing herself, she had left her sister no way to have any connection to her. And that was killing her inside because she loved her sister too. And so she made a huge sacrifice being recruited, number one, to the top school. She left it to go play for nothing University of Delaware. They were at the bottom of the, of the heap. But she was 20 minutes away from home. She lived with her family. She maintained that physical connection to her sister, and the family remained intact. Everyone said, that's it for her. Elena could have been something, a contender, but now she will waste away in oblivion, a has-been. Remember Elena, everyone was saying. Well, she began the next year playing, and there's a bright side to the story, a happy ending. She began playing for the University of Delaware Lady Hens. I really feel like they should give women's sports teams more vicious names than Lady Hens. You know, eggs coming up. It just sounds so harmless. But she led the, the Lady Hens, or the Blue Hens, I think, Blue Hens, Blue Hens, to this winning season for the first time. She played so brilliantly, she, she reached the 2,000-point mark by her sophomore year. That's unbelievable, even for men's basketball. If you see videos of her, she's this giant, a 6'5 woman. She can dunk. She's just a monster, and she plays so aggressively. <clears throat> this past season, she led her team to the NCAA Women's Tournament in the first round playing against University of Arkansas Little Rock. Her team won. Seven, let me see what the score is. I wrote it down here. 73 to 42 they won. Elena scored 39 of those points. She single-handedly almost outscored the entire opposing team. She could have outscored them single-handedly if they hadn't benched her for the last nine minutes. That's the kind of player she is. But she made an ultimate sacrifice, selfless, because she saw someone else whom she loved and understood that even though no one would have blamed her for taking this opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime chance, she released her grip on it because love compelled her. I don't know anything about her faith. I know that in one interview she had a gigantic cross hanging from her neck. I don't know what motivated it, but I know that her act is for me a beautiful picture of what divine agape, unconditional love looks like when God gives it to us and when we give it away to somebody else. 
Finally, I want to wrap up by sharing with you that I also believe that, that agape love as demonstrated in the redeeming work of Jesus is a rescuing love. It's a rescuing love. Look what John writes. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we who were dead and are going to stay dead might live through him. There's a lot packed in there that our default destiny is death, but that God sent his son so that a second option might become available to us. That instead of death, we might actually be able to live and to live forever. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. That word atoning really could also be be interpreted this way, paraphrased as rescuing. His rescuing sacrifice. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves, what we could not even demand or request. Agape love leaves the person who receives that love better off than they were before. Agape love doesn't burn you and leave you. It leaves you blessed, enriched. Agape love, whenever it touches a person and you walk away from them, they're left with an echo, a a shimmering of something good. I believe that agape love gives away as a gift the very thing which that person who received it can never ask from you. Have you ever been in a place of such need that what you needed is so socially inappropriate to ask another person? I mean, it's, it's, it's like this. If you need another kidney, you can't just go, hey, um, Steve, listen, can we just grab some coffee? We've been friends a long time, right, Steve? Dude, I need your kidney, man. What can you say? I'll give it back to you. In a year. That's not a small ask. It's not right to just go and ask a person, hey, could I have your kidney? Look, could I, you got two eyes. I got none. Could I just have one of your eyes? Listen, I can't take care of my kid anymore. Can you spend the rest of your life raising and taking responsibility for my kid? Hey, listen, I need to just borrow a little money. Could I borrow like $650,000? I'm in a jam. It's a real big jam. Call that a jam is an understatement. Have you ever been in a place of such need that what you needed, the deficit you were buried under, was so great you can't even with a straight face look at someone, you can't even imagine that anyone exists on the planet who would help you or could help you. And agape love encounters that kind of need and it says, oh man, I really feel the weight of your burden. I may not be able to do everything, But I can't just walk away from you. I can't unknow this struggle you're having. It would have been better if I was ignorant because now that I know I am so bound by this, it weighs on me. I think that's the reason, ultimately, that godly parents adopt. I think it's because you see these children discarded, and once you've seen them, it's just impossible to go on with your life forgetting what it's like to be in their shoes. That's why I think adoption is so beautiful. In the end, agape love cannot hear of a need and simply say, man, I'd hate to be in your shoes. Good luck. Gosh. And 
as if it's a surrogate, as if it's some kind of a meaningful substitute. We go on sharing about that person's sad news with everyone, expressing concern with furrowed eyebrows. Going, oh, did you hear about John? Oh, man, what a jam he's in. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? And we share the news as if someone, by multiplying the misery, that person's going to be better off. But Christian love, divine love, agape love, hears it and then suddenly becomes saddled under the same burden. And we say, I cannot do everything for you, but such as I have, I give to you. I can't do everything for you, but I can't just go, wow, good luck. God bless you. See you later. Agape love instinctively responds to need. In a a recent movie that I saw, I'm not going to give away what movie, but there was a scene that probably in the whole movie touched me more than any other. And that's when a group of soldiers was walking through a room and a terrorist threw a grenade into the cluster of soldiers. Everybody else didn't notice But the commanding officer noticed it. He looked at it. By the way, this is a, uh, I don't know what happened to my picture, but uh, this is supposed to be a picture of an M67 fragmentation grenade. When you pull the pin and release a spoon on on a grenade, it's usually got about a four to six second timer. And then it goes boom, and everyone dies. The grenade is thrown, and he stares at it. He's right in front of it. And think about this for a second. I recently lost concert tickets on Ticketmaster because, you know, I'm, you're trying, you're trying, you're trying, and you finally get a hit. Whoa, these t- seats in this section are available. You have 90 seconds to decide whether you want to buy them. Too much pressure. I lost the tickets because I'm, I'm like, do I want it? This is a good section. And then by the time I was ready to commit, time expired. I lost the tickets. When you have three to five seconds to decide whether you will die for other people or not. That decision is not the product of thoughtful reflection analysis. It costs (laughs) benefit analysis. That's not what happens. Instinctively, what you really believe, what you're really made of, the love you've always claimed will suddenly resolve very clearly in that instant. A grenade has a very clarifying effect on claims of love, doesn't it? I love you guys. You're like brothers to me. We're a band of brothers. Brothers in arms. You're closer than my physical brother. You say all that stuff among soldiers. Then somebody throws a grenade and you're like, five, four, three. And what do you do? What he did was born out of instinct, but it wasn't just training. It was something deeper than that. He jumped on it, and his body and his body armor absorbed pretty much the full force of it. It killed him, and it gave life to everyone else. I want you to think about that for a minute. There's a lot of people we say we love, but every now and then, God will send a situation to just go, oh, yeah? Yeah, you love each other. Let's find out what that love really looks like. It's so easy to say to people, I love you. I just love you. I love you so much. You need how much? Wow. Yeah. Listen, you know, things are tight. You can see I'm losing weight. We're not eating very well at home ourselves. Do you see what happens? Need. 
especially tremendous need has this very clarifying effect on claims of love. And when you have three to five seconds to decide whether you will run, when you see a grenade thrown, the question is not whether you will run. The question is in which direction. Will you run towards the grenade or behind the next big guy? Where is your heart at, really? Think about the people we say we love. Because when God faced a decision like that, the outcome was very clear from the start. God does not see our plight and respond with apathy or separation. He sees where we are, and he cannot ignore it at all. Some of you have very soft hearts. You wish you were rich enough and had enough time to rescue everyone. When you feel that genuinely, that is the heart of God coursing through your soul. When you're glad that you have a defendable excuse to not get involved, that is the very opposite of divine love. That is not love at all. When the lonely person, the socially awkward person says, hey, would you come to my party? No one else is coming. Could you come? And you're like, oh, thank God, my kid's graduating that day. Sorry, I, I totally would have. Liar. But, you know, I, I can't. My hands are tied. When you rejoice over your hands being tied so that you could walk away from someone else's need, that is the very opposite of love. You can go on claiming that you know what love is, but you would be a liar. Now, I say that not to indict you or to judge you, but to say if that's the way you generally live your life, then there is a divine problem, a cosmic issue going on with you, and that is that you don't have an experience of divine love, so there's nothing to give away. And the invitation of God to you is this. Come sit in front of me. Let me pour into you a love you have not yet experienced. I believe it will change you forever. How do you love? There's no reason to get defensive. The answer, the honest answer to that question will tell you a lot about your true spiritual condition. How do you love? What does it mean when you use those words towards other people? I love you. Honey, I love you. Are they followed quickly by, I love you. I just can't really be faithful to you. I can't take care of you. I can't be there for you. I can't get involved. I can't keep my promise. I can't, I can't. But listen, I do love you. Don't get me wrong. I do love you. I just can't do any of the things that love requires. But I love you. And the word of God says, do not let that lie persist among you. Love is stronger than that. It is what makes the universe go around. But it is not so cheap a thing as words. And if you can't love others that way, then the remedy is to sit before God and receive a love that will change the way that you love others forever. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me. Let's go to God in prayer together. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Love is not an easy thing. 
I don't want to be one of those pastors who stands at a pulpit and talks about love like it's just the easiest thing in the world. Loving people is so hard. I find even loving myself is difficult on most days. And yet most of us are surrounded by people who have claimed to our love. We've made promises to those people. So what are we going to do from this point forward? So much love is required of us to really live in this life. But love is so hard to practice. Maybe the person sitting next to you today, their soul, their heart is shriveling because what they need is love and what they get from you is not the kind of love that makes the heart come alive. I only know one place to get that kind of love. None of us can generate it by ourselves. So I think it would be good for us to spend a little time right now just quietly sitting in front of God. Simply make the confession, my tank is empty and so I have nothing to give away. Come love me. Help me to understand how deep the love is which I have already received from you. Just fill me up. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.